0: Today's episode is sponsored by Laird Superfood. Laird Hamilton started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day.
1: So I've been pretty happy with the Laird products because sometimes caffeine from coffee can give me a headache or can make me nauseous. Since drinking Laird's adaptogenic coffee, I've noticed that I can get a nice little pep from coffee without all the side effects.
0: Are you ready to feel more energized, focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com hoodoo and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. Use our promo code hoodoo H-O-O-D-O-O at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Who do plant mamas? Get your soul fed and your spirit red. Trend. I possess the power from way back when Sacrifice was <laughs> stripped from all of their So they had to find the magic within so I
1: Ancestors together my earth I conjure at my altar Who do play mama I manifest growth and I release trauma
0: we just out here trying to water our plants and mind our business, you know. Everybody from the deep south, man. Everybody can't have a culture like us.
1: Hey, y'all, and welcome back to another episode of Who Do Plant Mamas. I am one of your co-hosts, Leah Nicole,
0: and I'm Danny B.
1: And today, Danny B, how are you doing?
0: I am okay. Um, I'm good. I'm, I'm better today. <laughs>
1: How are you? Um, I am good as well. Lately, I've been doing like a lot of writing stuff. Last week, I did my first reading ever. I was super nervous. I was like pacing in my house and sweating, but I think it went well. <laughs> so I'm doing a call here because my friend was like, maybe you should do it on your podcast. So I'm looking for an agent. And I know that there are authors who listen to this podcast. If you like your agent, if they represent young adult and/or adult romance and are looking for a new client, HMU, who do plant at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs> if you are an agent listening, I need an agent. So HMU.
0: <laughs> get with it. All right. Well, let's get into some gratitude. What are you thankful for today?
1: Um, I'm gonna say that I am thankful for acupuncture. I started it in early February. So it's been about two months of sessions and it has just completely transformed my body, my energy in a way that like modern medicine has not been able to for the past four years. So, so yeah, I'm very grateful for that. So what are you thankful for? You know what, before I get
0: into what I'm thankful for, you just inspired me you know we got the podcast I don't know who be listening but I'm trying to move to DC so if anybody that listen knows affordable housing (laughs) in DC hit us up at the email but today getting into my gratitude I'm thankful to be here I'm thankful for my body my body she's been through a lot these past few months And it's like, as soon as I turned 30, all hell broke loose. But I'm thankful that my body has persevered. I'm thankful for myself for being kinder to my body. And yeah, thank you, body.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So today, uh, I'm super excited to talk about what we're talking about today, which is Black Excellence. It's something that I have been really struggling to, like, figure out what I want to say about it. And it's also something that I struggled with a lot when I was a teenager and I was a young adult. So some background about me, you know, I grew up in a Black community. My K-12 through school was half Black, half white. Our teachers were mostly white. And the advanced classes were also mostly white. So ever since I was in second grade, I was put into gifted classes where I was often like one of two black people um, surrounded by white people. (laughs) So like not only was I being compared to white people and being like, why are you don't you do these white people things? Being like an undiagnosed autistic child, I was also compared to the other black person. It was like, why aren't you doing these things that this other black person is doing? And so for me, it was a really alienating experience to be like one one of two black people in a predominantly white space. But then on the other side of that, there were a lot of parents and there were a lot of adults, black parents, black adults, who were applauding me for being the only black person in a room full of white people. And I wrote about that experience a few years ago. Um, the essay kind of went viral. It was called Where are the Parents At.
0: I remember that essay. Yeah. <laughs> you was <laughs> wow, you was dragging them. <laughs> I was like, I heard that.
1: I was frustrated. I was really frustrated. I was really angry because like to these Black adults, you know, I was quote unquote, our ancestors' wildest dream. And as a result, a lot of them were like, trying to live vicariously through me. And they were like, here are all the things I wanted to do in my life, but I can't do them, but you can. And it was just, it was a lot of pressure for me. And I remember like they would constantly (laughs) cross boundaries. My high school assistant principal, who is black, he saw the courses that I was taking in 10th grade and I took an automotive class and he was like why are you taking something like that you should be taking the medicine class and he's like, okay I can kind of understand you taking it if you want to um, be an engineer but if you don't want to be an engineer then this is just a waste of your time and I was like, do you not think I should have hobbies <laughs> It was so much pressure for me so I think from a young age like I was told that my only purpose was like, to perform this sort of excellence for other Black people and to perform it in the way they thought I should be and they thought was appropriate. Um, I didn't really have a lot of autonomy. A lot of the questions that I wanted to make were scrutinized. And by the time I went to college, I remembered that not even being a decision that I could make because from the get-go, there were Black people who were like, well, here are the schools you need to go to because here are the good ones. And here's the kicker a lot of the times they were discouraging me from applying to HBCUs in Mississippi because they were not like elite enough. So it was a lot. <laughs> it was a lot. Um, so Danny, what were your experiences with black excellence growing up? Um, I think it impacted me
0: a lot more in high school and college because life was happening and I was still expected to excel and I didn't. Like My first two years of high school, I was, you know, still making the same kind of grades, mostly straight A's. I went to a residential high school, a math and science school my last two years, and I didn't do well. I didn't do well at all. Um, I was super depressed. I don't I won't say it was a culture shock because there was enough. It was diverse enough where it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like when I got to college where I just it was jarring. But I just didn't feel as smart as the other kids. And, you know, that first grade that you're not really used to getting, it just kind of goes down here for there. You think you're a complete failure. And so my transition out of high school, I felt like a failure. I ended up getting sent back to my home school over one class because I had a C in it and they didn't think that I would get a B in time. It was traumatizing. I wanted graduation to be over. It's actually one of the top five worst experiences of my life. Um, My friends were crying and stuff. I cry. I think I probably cried in the privacy of my room when I got home that evening because I didn't graduate with honors because of that school. Um, (laughs) But I had, the thing is, even when I got sent, I got sent back to my home school two weeks before graduation I didn't get to go to prom because once they sent me home, they did not allow me to come to their prom. I missed my homeschool prom. Like it was literally, I felt like I was being punished for not doing well. Like I deserved it because I was not smart. And so that's how it impacts you. All of this pressure As you're dealing with depression, as I'm dealing with all these other stuff that you're dealing with as a teenager, and I'm beating myself up because I am literally trying to stay alive mentally and physically, but I'm supposed to continue to be a straight A student. And then dealing with like the violence of this residential school, because it really was violence in every way that they did it, like how they handled it, the gaslighting, manipulating me into like, it was just really bad. I'm all over the place, but it's like, I get where it comes from. Like we always have to look like we're doing well. We always have to look like we're on top of our game. And a lot of it is a performance that to be quite frank, it's killing us. I don't know if y'all have looked at the numbers. I can't tell you the exact numbers, but I was reading about it when I was working on an article last year, but the suicide Rates among black youth have been rising. That is not simply like mental health stuff. We gotta start being honest about this. It's like societal stuff. So yeah, sometimes this shit kills. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but I'm saying the pressure. Um, and I'm glad you brought up parents because I'ma get on y'all in a minute. I'ma get I'm I got some for the parents. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I definitely agree with you, like. I remember being in high school and college and I I remember that first bad grade I got in college and I was like, everybody was right. I don't belong here. I'm just going to fail. I'm not good at anything. Just the spiraling that happened. But overall for me in college, I did do the things that I wanted to do. Um, I was one of two black people who graduated with honors I was the only Black person who graduated magnum cum laude and uh, Phi Beta Kappa, which is this honor that is only for 1% of college students in the U.S. So it was a really big deal. But even after accomplishing all of that, I just remember being exhausted. Like, I didn't sleep. I had daily panic attacks. I was so stressed out. I would forget to eat. I was drinking a lot. Um, and I just was not taking really good care of myself. And I remember having all of these honors at graduation and people being like, well, now you got to get your master's and you got to get your PhD and you got to keep going. And I'm like, I barely made it here. I know I got the grades, but it took so much out of me. I had to sacrifice so much of my well-being to get to this point. And it felt like all people cared about was the degree. All they cared about was the product and they did not care about me as a person. And that's really when I started to see like black excellence is steeped in capitalism, like it is a product of capitalism. You don't care about the kids and their mental health and how they're actually doing. You just care that they make black people look good. You know college.
0: So we went to the same college and I am two I was two years ahead of you. One of the things I did in college was that I overcommitted to extracurricular because I was struggling um, in my classes. And people actually assumed that I was like a, a student when I was there. And it was like, you no, know, I was like B, mostly B's with a few C's. And I can't believe I'm saying this publicly because I've been embarrassed about that for a long time. Like I got into several graduate schools when I applied, but I didn't think that I was going to get in because of my GPA. My writing is always what has taken me over the edge. My writing ends up not reflecting my grades like it's like, "Oh, this, you know, your writing's so good." I mean, that's how I passed some of my science classes. Like it was like C's back to back to back and then you wrote a good paper and he was like, "Yeah, this this took you over." Yeah, because I was going to fucking fail this class. Um, <laughs> And this is actually not y'all getting my business. This is the first time I've ever like talked about this really publicly for real. Like I was not. No, I wasn't excelling as a college student. I just wasn't. I was doing all this extracurricular stuff. I was fucking fighting the school about diversity and how they were treating black people. And then they fucking made my life hell the last year that I had to deal with them. I think things start shifting for me was when I just started recognizing how harmful it was. And it's a lot to unlearn, especially with the news media and social media always uplifting it, always doing these 30 under 30 and 40 under 40. And a lot of Black folks and especially HBCUs, prioritize STEM and deprioritize, you know, liberal arts. You can tell by the funding that they get, people will people will give all this money and then it'll only be for like STEM and engineering and all of that, not agriculture, not liberal arts and, and writing, even though you need to know how to write, even though the people that we elevate, as Black culture, like in Black culture, as like these freedom fires and activists and wonderful writers who did so much, their subject areas were liberal arts, was writing, was philosophy, was psychology, sociology. They were thinkers. And deprioritizing things that allow us to think and look at the world in more nuanced ways, that is just as important. You can be an engineer and also have taken a fucking, I don't know, psychology class. Maybe they already have to do that or take a sociology class. You can even major in sociology and still be an engineer. But I think like this obsession with STEM, entrepreneurship and all that, it's about like this ticket to generational wealth. And if we don't follow those paths, we're losers or we're wasting time. We're not honoring the people that came before us. I'm all for generational like making sure that you are building a legacy where your descendants will be taken care of. But some of the generational wealth shit is giving capitalism in the worst way. You know what I mean? Everything is not about money. What else are you leaving behind? Generationally, what else are you doing for your descendants? How is your health? How is your your spiritual life? And so... I also don't like what this does to children. I saw a thread on Twitter not too long ago, maybe a few months ago, and these black pa- these black parents. We're saying like, yeah, when my kid goes to college, or I've already been talking to them about this, they have four options to major in. And that's, and they can just choose one. All of it was STEM. And they were trying to make this point where they're helping them and they don't want to set them up for failure. Like all these other people that went and majored in psychology and English, and now they don't have a job or they're not making any money. And it's like, I'm sorry, but that can happen in literally any major, especially if you force your child to do it and they're not very good at it. This is what I have to say about that. I'm not a parent, but I've been a kid before because I get tired of people saying like um, people that ain't parents ain't got no right to speak on it. Your kids are not going to be kids forever. Like they're going to remember when you killed their imagination. They're going to remember when you put them in a box and The frontal lobe ain't fully developed yet, but once they become adults, once they have other options, once they start seeing that therapist and or talking to other people, talking to friends and realizing that what my parents did to me was cruel, you're going to have to deal with that. You're going to have to deal with that. Your kid ain't going to always be what they are now. There's there. There'll be resentment. They might not even fool with you. And once they become grown, how many how many people have we saw that are now successful in another career start off in as an engineer or a doctor or something and then decided, I hate this. I'm going to do what I wanted to do in the first place. They can always change their mind, but to like limit your children, let me tell you something that one, your ancestors' wildest dreams, because at the very root of their enslavement was limiting their imagination. We don't want you to read because we don't want you to ever think about anything outside of this. We don't want you to, you know, take. You know, I know that you like poetry, but you're not going to take that poetry class because we want you to do this. I don't see how you wouldn't see the connection. It's incredibly cruel to do that to children, to limit them and to limit their ability to make their own choices about the life they want to live. Because I am 30 years old and I'm still struggling to validate myself. You know, sometimes when I'm going through something... Or even before I got my job now and I was like struggling with finding a job, I remember saying, you know, you should have been a doctor. If you had gotten your PhD, you wouldn't be going through this. Or you're, you're just like a a joke. Look at your classmates, look at what they're doing. They're doctors, they're traveling, they're nurses, they're this, they're that. And it's like, That's not fair. That's not fair to ourselves. The fact of the matter is, regardless of what your career is, we all deserve to be able to take care of ourselves. We all deserve to be treated with dignity and we're all contributing something beautiful to the world. I'm gonna stop there, but I just be getting upset about it with this thing with kids. Like, the kids, this is why we say children are the most oppressed group. Look at all this legislation literally trying to destroy trans children and trying to make everything about them protecting children when really y'all y'all are really, at this point, I just feel like y'all trying to wipe them off the face of the earth. That's the energy that is giving people. People that do all this violent shit in the name of children, y'all do not care about children. You don't. You hate them.
1: You're right. They do hate them. Um, and they're also like, they will literally ban a book just because it has a person of color in there, especially if it's a Black person. And I think about the violence of that because the first time I read a Black girl as a main character, I was 24 years old and I had been reading books since I was five. So it's messed up. Um, So you covered a lot, but I want to go back and talk about the dangers of deprioritizing the liberal arts. So something that I've noticed is that pretty much all the black people that we went to college with that majored in STEM, they all follow Umar Johnson. They all believe like he is this beacon of black liberation one thing about liberal arts, about sociology, about cultural theory, is that you get a nuanced understanding of the world. And for us, we have learned like, sometimes Umar Johnson is right, especially when it comes to white supremacy, he tends to be right. And so I think for these black STEM majors, they see like, oh, he's right about white supremacy. Therefore, he must be right about all these other things. But we know that like, just because he's right about white supremacy, that doesn't mean he is right about the solution to it, which for him, the solution is black patriarchy. What I'm seeing from a lot of our like fellow classmates is that they're mistaking black oppression or black patriarchy where blacks, et cetera, men get to be in that position of power that white men have always been in. They're mistaking that for liberation. And so something else that you brought up. I think you're right. I think a lot of people think that their child owes them um, for being born and your child doesn't owe you anything. And I think that's really hard for people to get through their brain. Your child doesn't owe you anything. And it's not your child's fault, like whatever frustrations you have with them. I also see that too. Like parents will be like, you don't understand. My child gets on my nerves. My child is this, this, and this. And I'm like, I think it can be incredibly frustrating to be a parent, especially if you're a single parent and you have to raise a child by yourself. That is not fair to you. And at the same time, it is not your child's fault. It is a lot of different systems at play. And I think it's really easy to blame children, but it is not, it's not your child's fault. So like you said, I am someone, I majored in communications in college. I did it because I wanted to be a writer, you know, I wanted to like major in creative writing, but I did communications because it seemed like a good middle ground. I worked in my early to mid 20s and I realized that a lot of what I was doing was dictated by other people still. It was me negotiating what I wanted to do, which was writing, which was with what other people wanted to do, which was find this stable career. And and right now I am unemployed. (laughs) Um, but I'm doing the things I want. To, I'm writing. I have this podcast that you listening to. <laughs> um, I'm doing the things that I want to do, even if it does not mean I will be financially secure. But I am comfortable right now. So for me, it's worth it. It's so complicated because it's like
0: you want to be able to take care of yourself, but you also don't want to be miserable. Going to a job every day that you hate does so much damage to you health-wise, like, is it even really worth it? You know what I mean? Now, I know people got kids and stuff. I don't have kids. I got siblings and I got a nephew who, you know, gets my money when I spend spend it on (laughs) them. And always a little bit too much. But I don't know. The world is so fucked up. I just ain't got the energy no more to be chasing this quote unquote generational wealth. I want so much more for my descendants. I want them to be taken care of, but I also want to be an example of what it means to live a life of like pleasure, live a life that I'm proud of, live a life that is filled with love and not, misery and not like my entire life is dictated by the machine that is capitalism you gotta resist in some aspects of your life but you know again it's complicated niggas got bills and stuff but I tell you what a lot of y'all would be happier if you t- take taking some of them liberal arts class that's all I'm saying because you can't write you're not empathetic so much You don't know how to communicate. Reading comprehension. (laughs) Don't have it. No reading comprehension. And you don't know how to communicate with people in a way that's kind. Are you ready to take a break or did you have anything else? Yeah, we can take a break. Thank y'all for tuning in to our show. If you want to support us, you can rate and review us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Hoodoo Plants and
1: Instagram at Hoodoo Plant Mamas. Check us out on Patreon where we share exclusive video, plant, and spiritual content for only $3 a month. If you prefer a one-time donation, you can donate via Cash App, hashtag Mamas, or our PayPal HoodooPlantMamas at gmail.com. Let's get back to the show. <laughs> so to expand on our earlier conversation you shared this article with me um essentially about how black excellence ruins art and it was exactly what I have been thinking as I read books by black people and I couldn't quite put my finger on it about like as the kids say what gave me the ick (laughs) and sometimes Sometimes I think it's like a lack of love during the revision process, but then other times it seems like the black writer isn't writing to me like there are things being explained that I just feel are redundant, and I'm like, "Why are they doing that?" um and it kind of feels like their audience is white people and and it makes sense like if you spend time in publishing circles, people of color are actively encouraged to write their books to white people because the publishing industry thinks only white people read and so sometimes when I read this work by black authors it seems like they're doing like word acrobatic with these sentences and it feels like they're not really trying to tell a story but they're trying to show off their command of the English language and that's really where you lose me because I'm like if you want to be a wordsmith say you want to be a wordsmith If you want to write poetry, write poetry, okay? But I come to read a book to read a book. I want to be told a story. I don't want to read a sentence five different times to try to figure out what's being said. That's really what causes me to um, not be immersed in a story. And so when I'm reading these books by Black people... And it has this inaccessible language that me, like I'm someone, I have a college degree, I write, (laughs) I read, and I'm just like, I'm not getting it. I feel like at that point, if I'm a peer and I'm confused, I think that that's really a call for the writer to rewrite and rework, or it's a call for the writer to be honest about who their audience is and that it's not me. I really wish a lot more authors will be honest about that because I would save me (laughs) time reading their books. But yeah, I feel like a lot of this kind of comes from writers who are afraid of not seeming smart. And so they do too much in their books instead of scaling back and trying to really focus on mastering story elements.
0: I I wrote about this as well, but I attended the band book festival and kiese was one of the panelists and i don't even remember the question or exactly what he says so i'm prayer so i'm paraphrasing he talked about this idea of writing to the people who are actively working against you and he used the example of some work that he's working on now he showed a friend and the friend was like no Because he was essentially writing to, he said, Tate Reeves versus writing about, let's say, his grandmama's garden, which is still kind of connected to Tate Reeves. Because when you think about systemically, like what the powers that be that Tate Reeves represents, how it impacts our relationship to the land, to our gardens, um, to our bodies, to the landscape, whatever in general. He said it much better than that. So what he said after he made that point was that like, you know, if I was to write a book that was like an open letter to Tate Reeves, y'all would buy that shit. Like that shit would blow up. And he's exactly right. Those books sell. You know what I mean? That's why we get the how to be an (laughs) anti-racist. That's why we get the how to talk about race books that end up on a bestseller. And that ain't no shade to the authors. Do whatever your soul permits. I'm not doing that labor. Um, and I'm not, you know, I'm not going to center that in my work in such a prominent way where the work is no longer for the people I love and the people who love me. To me, it feels so exhausting, like the performance for people who don't love you who are and who are actively working against your entire existence. No amount of books is going to change a racist mind because the problem is not the individual racism. The problem is systemic racism. And the people that need to be reading the book are the people that are making these, this legislation, like legislation happening here that's attempted to purge voters in Mississippi. They, they are actively working to disenfranchise black voters. They're actively working to make sure that trans people And queer people cannot exist here at all. Like they don't want this place livable for anybody but white folks with money. And I'm not wasting my time, my mental labor to try to write books that they ain't never going to read and that they never going to care about. You know what I mean? To your comment about um, the words and, (laughs) and sentence acrobatics. You know, I love pretty sentences. You know, um, Kiese is one that writes pretty sentences. But you could tell that he worked on that sentence for a long time. He revised it. He redid it. He played with it. And then we get something that's so lush and beautiful, in my opinion. Um, And I just love the creativity of it. I do know that some writers, it can get excessive and... To be fair, I ain't going to say no names because I don't want to upset nobody. But a lot of our classic Black literary faves had a bad habit of that. Like, there are some classics I simply cannot read. I can't. I've tried. i forced myself. I've reread, you know, Toni Morrison said, you supposed to be rereading pages over again. That's reading. Well, I tried and I just couldn't, mother. Like, I really did. I read the page five times and I still was at the end with a head full of just tumbleweed. I didn't know what was going on. And that's okay, you know, but I get why they did that. They were working against so much and I get why maybe some people do. Maybe they feel like they have to do that as well, but sometimes it comes across as pretentious and I don't believe everybody's doing it because like, I think some people legitimately want to they want to do whatever it takes to get into publishing to sell a book. And I ain't mad at it. You know, it's putting money in what white performing for white acceptance in in publishing and any type of art. That's where the money is. And I ain't mad at y'all. I just ain't doing it. Cause I ain't got it in me. I ain't built like that. But yeah, I, I totally get what you mean. And I think it's a lot to unpack. And I think that. Obviously, all of that is
1: tied into this need to be excellent, but excellent for who? So, a few years ago, I started trying to write in a simpler style and really think about my audience and who I was trying to connect to. And a lot of the reason was like in college, I was taught to write, you know, do the word acrobatics, throw in all these big words and stuff, write to a certain audience. And then when I started writing, publicly like on a blog that was when I was getting a lot of pushback like what does this word mean what does that mean and instead of getting frustrated and being like google it I was like maybe I should be explaining these things because I had been to college I had learned those things in the college setting not everyone had like like we said earlier not everyone has taken a liberal arts class so not everyone knows and understands um, cultural concepts and so I was really trying to break down on my writing and write in a way that was straightforward that was easy to understand and it seems simple like it seems like it should be easy to write straightforward but when you try to write that way in a way that the audience can understand in a way that can be poetic and beautiful like we said like kieste does that's like my goal is to kind of write like him but when you, it's, it's very hard, it's, a, it's extremely hard. And so lately I have been calling myself a community storyteller because I feel like that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to tell stories for the community. I want to be understood. I want people to feel or learn or delight in my stories. And in order to do that, I have to make it easy for them to understand. And I don't think that that makes me a lesser writer than those whose audiences are for white people or for the Black elite. And and don't get me wrong, I think if you want to write your fancy sentences, it is definitely your right. But I think I would prefer you be honest about who those fancy sentences are for. Preach! Um, so
0: first of all, I love that you call yourself a community storyteller because when I think about it, I see a lot of Black folks that even if they don't name it, like, I think that's what they are. And I like the idea of naming it. Um, I will say I have, I have been reading a lot about writing. I've been reading Julie Cameron, who writes a lot about writing. Um, And just like thinking about the ways we overthink engaging in writing, engaging in any kind of art. Cause I'm gonna, I, I feel like all artists go through this. And, you know, the most annoying thing a person can say to you when you might feel like you're having a blockage when it comes to your art is just do it. Just do it. Right. That feels like if I could just do it, I would like it makes you want to curse them out. But at the same time, just fucking do it. And a part of this black excellence in art conversation is. The white gaze and this invisible audience that we bring with us, that we bring with us to our desk, to our computer, to our fucking notebook as we're writing. And even if you're a type of person who's on the type of time that me and Lee are on, we don't fucking write to that gaze and we don't really get down with that type of writing. We're all impacted by it, point blank, period. Like it would be dishonest to say you're not. And it looms over you as you're creating, convincing you that everything that you do, everything that you write needs to be perfect. That type of pressure doesn't leave room for practice, for mistakes, for revision, for more mistakes, or for learning. All of that is a part of creating art. And I've been thinking a lot about that because one thing that Julie says in the book and what other writers have said is that you need to just show up to the fucking page and write like no one is ever gonna read it just do the shitty first draft just write whatever is coming out of your head even if it sounds even if you think it sounds weird or you don't like it or that's a bad sentence let the sentence be bad and put that fake ass audience or those people or that big ass white man standing over you telling you that you never going to be a real writer, put them in a jar and throw it in the trash can, like, and do it. This is a self drag. I'm telling you because I've been writing and I have been having to say, tell myself that because it's true. I think that that, you know, doing that pushing back against that audience or that person that you've created, that's, Looming over you, it will maybe help with like not feeling like you gotta use unnecessarily big words. My thing with like the money words is intention. I wrote a short story one time and I used some kind of word, it wasn't a huge word, but it definitely was like it was random to the story, it did not fit. And my friend was like, Okay, did you say that or did the character say that? Because it's giving Danny, and I was like, Yeah. Is the word necessary? Is that something the character would say? Sometimes the character just like that. If, you, if you've if you read Long Division uh, and you know who Lavander Peel is, you know that he the type of nigga that be using money words for no reason in a conversation. That's who that character is. That's what we learn about that character. That's not a surprise. And some of the stuff that he said, you might have to, as a grown-ass person, go Google it. That's who he is. But If you writing about mama and her, you know, that live out in the country and gardens and all that kind of stuff. And she saying some random word that you know that she would never say, get real. Like (laughs) the shorter version of what was really long is like, Pushing back against black excellence in art is really about getting rid of that audience that you created in your mind. I know that it pisses you off. It pissed me off listening to this white lady tell me this on this audiobook, but just fucking do it. Fuck all that other stuff. Your art matters. What you have to say matters. And nobody's going to see that shit be you. If you decide that it's not good enough, like if you decide you don't want to get it published, fine. But give yourself an opportunity to just be free and play with it and and say whatever you want to say, create whatever characters you want to create and then go from there.
1: I just want to say I got that same advice, but I got it from Toni Morrison in her documentary, The Pieces I Am. And she said, don't be afraid to write a bad draft. But even for her, she said it took her, I think it was Sula. It wasn't her, it took her a few books before she got over that every single sentence I write needs to be perfect. But even for someone like Toni Morrison who has a Nobel prize, like that is something that she had to learn. Like you can write a bad book and you can always fix it later. And I do agree with you. Like the that is some of the best advice I got because I got out of my head with like every sentence needs to be perfect. And now I view like every sentence needs to have a purpose like, it has to either add something to the story, add something to the character, add something to the setting. Like, it needs to have a purpose. It doesn't need to be perfect. Like, we can always fix it later. We can use a, a shinier word. <laughs> um, But yeah.
0: Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I don't want to make it seem like Julia Cameron. I don't actually think much of what she said is um unique or something she came up with. I just got this audiobook for free. So that's what I'm listening to and it's been helpful, but I'm glad you mentioned Toni Morrison because one thing I think about a lot is that I do think Toni Morrison, she, she talked about writing in between doing things in the kitchen, taking a piece of paper, just writing like her stories when they came to mind, you know what I mean? And ain't no telling what that looked like. I guarantee you whatever she wrote on those little bitty pieces of paper that she was just grabbing throughout the day, it probably don't look nothing like what it looked like when it was the final product. So she's a person, Kiese is a person because he talks about revision all the time. That used to annoy me because I used to be like, and it's easy for this nigga to say he be talking, he be revising f- things five times, like, but that's just because he's a good writer. But it's like, yes, phenomenal writer. But also like that essay he wrote, oh my gosh, just reminded me, you are not good enough not to practice. You are not fucking good enough not to practice. Like, you need to practice. Everybody needs to practice. And whatever you do, that is how you get better.
1: I wanted to say I definitely agree with you. I think a lot of times we see the things that these writers do and how great they are, but we don't see the work behind it. I was reading this thread on Twitter and it was talking about how it takes a village to create a book. Like, yes, the author comes up with the idea. But it goes through dozens of hands, dozens of revisions before you get the final product. And, you know, for me as a writer, like I am someone who now, as a writer, a lot of times when I submit to these places, it's almost a clean copy of a draft. But that comes from 15 years of practicing writing. And that comes from a lot of forethought and a lot of planning before I even put words on the page. And it also comes from years of developing my craft. So I think a lot of what we see comes from years and years and years of practice that you don't see. And so I think a lot of times, like, if you are a writer, just take it easy on yourself. Have fun. I think that's something that's really missing a lot from discussions of, like, craft and writing have fun when you write. Writing should be fun. (laughs) Oh, and I think a lot of times because of capitalism, because of the pressure to be Black and to be excellent, we have lost sight of that. And so, yeah, that's all I have.
0: Well, cool. Thank you for bringing this conversation, um, you know, to light to discuss clearly I had more thoughts than I thought I had because I had a lot of feelings like this was a lot of feelings and I didn't realize that this has greatly impacted my life all right y'all if you like this episode you can like rate and review Who Do Plant Mamas on Spotify and Apple Podcasts if anything from the show resonated with you, make sure you share it with us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at HoodooPlants and Instagram at Plant Mamas. Stay tuned for the next episode. Bye. Bye. <laughs>